text this morning out of Mark chapter 7. If you'll go back to that, Jesus is having an argument with the Pharisees because his disciples are not participating in the ceremonies of washing and cleansing before they eat and they go into the temple. And they were disagreeing about the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, the dietary laws and the ritual purity laws. According to the law, if you had touched an unclean animal or a dead animal, or if you had eaten an unclean animal or had a skin disease like boils, rashes, or open sores, you were considered unclean, defiled, and stained. And this meant you couldn't enter the temple to worship God with the rest of the community. And this may sound harsh. Why would the Old Testament put those kind of harsh laws on people? But if you think about it, it's not as odd as it sounds. Over the centuries, people from many different religions have fasted during times of prayer and consecration. Why? Because fasting is an aid that helps you develop spiritual hunger. Also, not just in Christianity, not just in Judaism, in many religions, people kneel down. Why? Because kneeling is an aid that helps you develop spiritual humility. It's something natural you can do that aids something spiritual. So the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament and the efforts to stay clean and pure and free from filth were used by religious people as a visual aid to help them recognize that unless you are morally and spiritually clean, you cannot approach a holy and righteous God. And to bring this into our society today, you may not think it's relative, but it is. If you're going to meet with somebody who's really important to you, what do you do? You take a bath, you take a shower, you comb your hair, you put on cologne, you brush your teeth, you apply the mouthwash. Amen. <laughs> the wise ones among you do. What are you doing? You're removing the filth. You're getting clean because you don't want to go into the presence of someone who you highly esteem and smell bad or look bad. And the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, they run across the same lines. The, the basic thought was we're approaching someone who's not just important to us. He's of the ultimate importance, God. And when we come before him, we need to be clean. And the Pharisees had one thing right, one thing to their credit. God does require purity. So to be unclean is a problem. But Jesus reveals that the problem of the stain, the problem of the lack of cleanliness is that the filth isn't on us. It's in us. We're not stained on the outside as bad as we are stained on the inside. In verse 14 of our context, again, Jesus called the crowd and said, listen to me and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. In our natural state, we are stained, unclean, unfit for the presence of God. And some people have a sense of this and others don't. If you have a sense of how you're stained, you may wrestle with feelings of shame or with guilt. If you don't have a sense of how you're stained on the inside and the wickedness of your own heart, 
then you may call it things like anxiety or depression or call it some other kind of syndrome. You have feelings of unworthiness that you cannot explain. To illustrate this, Franz Kafka, the great writer, in his book, The Trial, tells the story of the leading character, Joseph K. And he's living a normal life. Everything's going fine. And one day he's suddenly arrested and thrown into prison. And no one will tell him why he's there. Throughout the pages of the book, he agonizes, what did I do? Was it this? Was it that? And he's going through his mind trying to figure out why he's been arrested and no one will tell him. Everyone is unsympathetic. They're callous. They're hard. And on the last day before his trial, the warden comes into the cell and stabs him and he dies. When asked to explain this mysterious book, Kafka said, and I quote, the state in which we find ourselves in society today is that we are sinful yet independent of guilt. In other words, most people, most secular people in the world and some in the church don't really believe in a final judgment day where all debts will be settled. They don't believe in sin and recompense, and yet they deal with profound feelings of guilt and shame that they cannot explain. Why do we carry fears of rejection? Why do we hide our true selves or at least control what people see about our lives? Where's all the self-doubt coming from? Kafka said, you may not believe in religion, sin, or judgment, but at the end of the day, you feel guilty. And you don't know why. Many people try to give it clinical names, a complex, a self-esteem complex, a victim mentality. But there's no escaping the fact that we all have a sense that we are unclean. And Jesus shows us why we can't shake the feeling. Verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said, are you so dull? Don't you see? Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them because it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And Jesus is being graphic here. He's saying food travels from your hand to your mouth, to your stomach, and eventually to the toilet. But it never gets to your heart. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it, it, it is within the heart, it is within the person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. Why the strife in our society? Why the racism? Why do loving relationships fall apart? What's happening to us? Jesus said, it's not the unclean food or the fact that you didn't go through the religious ceremony and wash your hands. It's something far deeper. It's sin inside your heart. When Jesus deals with the issue of sin, he is extreme. So extreme, many people left him after he dealt with the topic. It's in Mark chapter 9. He tells his disciples and his followers, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, amputate it, cut it off. When he speaks about the hand and the foot, he's talking about sinful behavior. When he speaks about the eye, he's talking about sinful desire. Both are like a fire that has broken out in your living room. Yeah. 
let's say that a cushion on your couch catches on fire. You can't afford to leave it there. You can't say, oh, well, at least it's not the whole house that's on fire. Why? Because fire is never satisfied. And what starts on the cushion will eventually take the couch. And once it takes the couch, it'll take the table and the living room and the dining room and the kitchen. And the whole house suddenly is engulfed in flames. Why? Because fire never stays satisfied. It wants more and more and more and more. And if you don't put it out, everything else will be destroyed. And sin is the same way. It always leads to chaos and separation from God and intense suffering, both in this life and in the next. And the intense suffering that sin brings in the next life is called hell. This is why Jesus uses the extreme, drastic analogy of self-mutilation pulling out the eye and amputation removing the hand and the foot because there can be no compromises with something so dangerous. We must avoid it at all costs. And if we have to, we have to cut it off. But you see the problem? Now I want you to think about everything we've said so far. Do you see the problem? My problem with sin was limited to my hand. It would be painful, but I could deal with it. I could cut it off. If my problem with sin was limited to my eye, it would be painful, but I could deal with it because I could pluck it out. But Jesus already told us in an earlier text that it's not the hand and it's not the foot and it's not the eye that's our greatest problem. It's the heart. And no matter how hard you try, you can't cut out your own heart. So the external, outside efforts we employ to clean ourselves, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much effort we put in, we can never cleanse ourselves of the stain that's on the heart and the soul. And many of us know this, and yet we're still trying. We're still doing. We're still engaging so many measures, trying to make ourselves clean. I grew up with it all of my life in the denomination we used to be in. They told women they couldn't cut their hair or wear makeup. And good people who were desperate to follow the things of God and desperate to rid themselves of the stain, they thought the longer they wore their hair and if they never put any makeup on and if they always looked just absolutely terrible, that then they'll be clean. But if you look at it close enough, you'll find out that there was just as much mess in the church as there was outside the church because people can't clean themselves. Some people run into deeper positions in the church. They think if they serve the Lord, they join the clergy, that maybe being a preacher will make me clean. Maybe the lifestyle will force me to be clean. Let me just raise up my hand and tell you, no, 
The position in the office cannot cleanse you of the stain of the heart and of the soul. Serve the Lord all you want to. Be as faithful. Work as hard as you want to. It still does not cleanse you of the stain of sin in the heart and in the soul. And people who focus on keeping the rules, if I just work on my outward obedience and I keep all of the rules, then I'll be clean. But the problem is the weakness of your flesh makes you unable to keep the rules because you may start doing good on the outside keeping the rules. But when you start doing good on the outside, you get puffed up and prideful on the inside. It's part and parcel of each situation. So you're either a mess externally or you're a mess internally, but you're still a same mess. Whether you're a crackhead, drug addict or prostitute or whether you're prideful and unforgiving and mean as a junkyard dog on the inside it'll put you in the same devil's hell as all of the pimps and murderers and child molesters because you cannot cleanse yourself and if you're a rule keeper in the room you just want to do everything right so that you'll be accepted you'll find that when you're doing good you feel real good about yourself on top of the world. But all the good goodies, I want you to hear me, you're going to have a slip. And there ain't no slip like a goody, goody slip. When a good, when you're laughing, but when goody, goody slip, they commit suicide. They can't take it. They can't handle it. They feel that the world has crumbled around them. Or when you're being real good and you're trying real hard and focusing real hard and then life happens and something terrible or tragic happens. You know what you do, goody goody? You blame God. I've been keeping all these rules and sacrificing so much and obeying so much. How could you let this happen to me? How could a loving God allow X, Y, Z? You know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying that you were trying to control God with your behavior. As if God owes you something because you was trying to act right. What you're really saying is that you are your own God because you know better how things should go in your life and in the world than God himself, who incidentally sits on the circle of the earth with all power in his hand, gives some life and takes some away. Job said the Lord he gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's all a real believer can say. But when you've been trying real hard, you get beside yourself and think God owes you something. So it's a huge pendulum swing. It's either I hate me or I hate thee. Religion doesn't work. Because it doesn't change the self-centeredness focus. It doesn't change the self-righteousness. It doesn't change the self-absorption. Now, something interesting about the text, unlike Matthew, Luke, and John, Mark almost never makes editorial comments in his book. So on the rare occasion that he does, we should notice. And he makes one here in Mark 7, 19. 
He said, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, it doesn't read that Jesus got up and said, all foods are clean now. He wasn't abolishing the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. He wasn't saying, oh, that was never important. Rather, he declared or he pronounced after this saying, all foods are clean. The Greek experts and scholars agree Jesus was saying, as of right now, I make all of these foods clean. As of right now, I make all of the washing laws fulfilled. I spoke the world into being. I spoke Lazarus out of the grave. I spoke peace to the storm. And with that same declarative authority, now I say all foods are clean. Now, to understand this in its fullness, you have to remember the incredible high regard Jesus placed on Old Testament scripture. Even on himself, he considered it binding. In Matthew, Jesus said not even a punctuation mark from the law will be done away with until all of the law is fulfilled. Jesus would never look at an Old Testament commandment and say, okay, we're beyond all that. It's going to be this way now. So what is he saying? All of the cleanliness laws and the purification laws are now fulfilled in me. That he has himself for us fulfilled the requirements of the law. That brings me to Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet sees a vision of Joshua the high priest standing in the temple. Now, those of you who are Bible students, uh, even in a minor way, you remember the temple had three parts. There was an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was reserved for judgment. One time a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant basically was where God came down to either judge or forgive his people. The high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement and take the blood of an innocent lamb and offer it for the people inside the Holy of Holies. As a result, the Holy of Holies was a dangerous place. In Leviticus 16, God said, if you come near the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, put a lot of incense in the air, put a lot of smoke in the air so it's foggy and you can't see. Because if you see my glory directly, it'll kill you. Because I appear in the cloud over the mercy seat for the purpose of judgment or forgiveness, and I don't want you to die. Only one person, again, could enter. Only one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So what Zechariah is seeing in his vision is he's seeing the temple of God inside the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur. Now, before a priest in the Old Testament was allowed to enter, he had to go through a week-long purification process. He went away. He stayed secluded. Why? So that he wouldn't touch anything unclean or become defiled. He would wash his body, according to Scripture, thoroughly two times per day, and he would prepare his heart and spirit to meet with the Lord. On the night before the Day of Atonement, he would not sleep but stay up all night reciting scripture to prepare his spirit to be in the presence of God. The morning of Yom Kippur, he would bathe head to toe and dress himself in spotless white linen garments. 
and he would enter the Holy of Holies three times on that one day. He had to offer three separate sin offerings, one for himself, then he would come out, go back in, offer for the priesthood and the Levites, then he would go back out. And finally, he would go in and offer for the people. And the scripture commands that each time he came out, he had to bathe again and dress again in new, white, spotless garments. Tedious process. Oh, and all of this happened in public. The entire congregation would gather around and watch him do the washing and watch him do the dressing. They inspected closely every garment that he put on to make sure he was spotless and pure because they needed him to be perfectly clean so that he would be acceptable enough to offer on their behalf. They would cheer him on as he was getting ready. They would scrutinize him and make sure he was right as he was going in. And then they would celebrate he was going in produce something for them they couldn't do themselves. When the high priest went before God, there wasn't a speck on him. He was as pure as pure could be. And that's what makes Zechariah 3 so disturbing. Because when Zechariah goes into this vision and he sees the high priest going in before God to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make the offering for the people, the scripture said he was in filthy garments covered in excrement and Zechariah couldn't believe what he was seeing. How did this happen? What kind of congregation would allow their priest to go in like that? What kind of priest would go in like that? Is he out of his mind? But then the Lord reveals what Zechariah is seeing is that regardless of the cleanliness he had on the outside, God was seeing the condition of his heart. And no matter how much righteousness and purity and all of the rituals he had gone through, when he got dressed up in his best, when he was his most consecrated, when he was his most disciplined, when he had done everything he knew how to do, when he was standing before God, he was still standing there filthy. That's why you ought never judge anybody for their weaknesses or their sins. You ought never cast an eyebrow at somebody because of something that they are going through. Some of you need to pray, God put a guard at my mouth. Because as you're talking down about someone else, never forget that God sees you how you really are. God sees everything. Everything is naked and open before him. And when you judge someone else, just because you didn't do what they did you did do something y'all don't want to talk to me I said just because you didn't do what they did you did do and you're just as guilty and you're just as wrong and you're standing there just as filthy the text brings the powerful realization that our best efforts still leave us unclean.
I want all the church leaders to hear me right now. I want my team to hear me right now. I want my ears to hear my voice say it right now. It doesn't matter how long you've been in leadership, how long you've been in church, how many scriptures you know, how much you pray, how much anointing oil has been dumped on your head. In God's eyes, you're still filthy. Why? Because nothing we can do can address the heart. When Zechariah realizes this, he, he falls into despair. And just as he's about to walk away, he hears God say, take off his filthy clothes. And then God says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine Hebrew word costly expensive garments on you centuries later another Joshua would come another high priest in the Aramaic Hebrew and Greek it's the same name Aramaic Yeshua Hebrew Joshua Greek Jesus in all three languages they mean the same thing Savior this Yeshua Joshua Jesus would be our great high priest who would make the ultimate sin offering the ultimate atonement for us and one week before he was to make it, he began to prepare himself. He secluded himself away from the crowd. The night before, he didn't go to sleep. But what happened next to Jesus was the reverse of what happened to Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. Instead of the crowd rallying around him and cheering for him, they ridiculed him and mocked him. When Jesus stood before the Father, instead of being accepted and loved, he was forsaken and rejected. Instead of being clothed with a new robe, he was stripped naked. And he was bathed, too, in human spit, sweat, and his own blood. Why? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God clothed Jesus in our sin so that he could give us the costly garments, the fine garments of the righteousness of Jesus. Hebrews 13 says Jesus was crucified outside the gate in a garbage heap, a place of ultimate filth and uncleanness so that those who believe in him can be made clean. God has clothed us in the most costly clean garments. It cost Jesus his blood 
And it's the only thing that can deal with the filthiness of your heart. Are you carrying shame and guilt? Working and doing so much to try to escape it. Are you exhausted with the feelings of unworthiness and shame? You're sick of dealing with the insecurity, the anxiety, being anxious and not knowing why. In closing, I raise up the old Presbyterian hymn to you. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. Stand to your feet, bow your heads, close your eyes. In Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Let's all pray this prayer together because there's not one of us that doesn't need it. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Wash me in your blood. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. That you are my justification. You are my righteousness. And you are my cleanliness. Thank you for all you've done for me. I give myself to you today. And I receive you into me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand praise all over the house. like our elders to come. If you have any prayer needs at all, prayer needs in your family, prayer needs for health, either for you or for a loved one, prayer needs for financial situations or any kind of trouble, I'd like you to please come now as we sing. Any prayer needs at all. Those of you watching online, I want you to know we're praying for you. If you'll type down a prayer request there in the comments, all of our prayer team will meet over it and pray over it and believe God for your miracle in your life.